0: Esteemed audience, and welcome to another episode of Middle Grade Ninja. I'm your host, Rob Kant, author of Banneker Bones and the Giant Robot Bees and Banneker Bones and the Alligator People. They are middle grade adventure novels about an 11 year old biracial boy detective uh, who is a world famous inventor of robots. He takes on giant robot bees and alligator people, and he's got a third adventure coming early next year. Uh, if you're curious, you can check out the first book, Banneker Bones and the Giant Robot Bees, as a paperback and audiobook narrated by the exquisite David Radke, or the e-book is free, free to download. Uh, anytime you're watching or listening to this, wherever fine ebooks are sold. So get yourself a copy. It's free. Once you're hooked, come back and see me with some money for part two and part three coming soon. Uh, Under the super secret pen name Robert Kent, I've written some uh, horror novels for older readers, such as All Together Now, A Zombie Story, which is a young adult novel. Uh, That one's about 15-year-old leading his brother through the zombie apocalypse. Ricky's brother, uh, Chuck, has been bitten and infected, uh, and Ricky believes there is a cure. Uh, So before Chuck becomes a full-blown zombie forever, they've got to get to that cure, but they're going to be chased by a lot of zombies on the way. If you like The Walking Dead, if you like your zombies uh, slow, and you like your characters despairing and trying to figure out how to survive, altogether now a zombie story is the one for you. Uh, If you want to go beyond that to even darker horror, uh, check out The Book of David. That is my five-volume serial horror novel. It's me doing my best Stephen King impersonation. Uh, It's about an atheist who buys a haunted house that then begins to give him religious visions involving flying saucers. Uh, So right away from that description, you know whether or not that's something that's going to interest you. If you're curious to check it out... Uh, like I say, it's uh, five volumes. I call them chapter one, chapter two, chapter three, chapter four, chapter five. But chapter five is actually the longest book that I've written. Um, so they're, they're well beyond chapters. The first chapter, the Book of David, chapter one by Robert Kent, is available to download as an ebook for free whenever you're watching or listening to this, wherever fine ebooks are sold. So check out chapter one if you like that. Well, I've got four more chapters for you at cost. Uh, So hopefully uh, you'll check both of those out. Keep tabs with the show at middlegradenincha.com. I've got a list of every uh, one of our upcoming guests, as well as interviews with hundreds of uh, literary agents, editors, authors, other publishing professionals, folks that you'll want to read interviews with, plus I occasionally write posts. So that's a pretty good deal. Uh, And finally, today's show is brought to you by the Indiana Fear Farm. So if you're in Indiana, specifically if you're near the Lebanon Jamestown area, head to IndianaFearFarm.com. That is a haunted barn and hayride that is run every year by my cousin. So if you want to see what uh, demented imaginings tortured me and started me on the path to becoming a horror author... Head to Indiana Fear Farm. You can experience it all firsthand. I don't go there because I'm too much of a wuss. They see me coming. They know who I am. I will never get out of that haunted barn without being tortured. But you, esteemed audience, you can head to Indiana Fear Farm. You'll have a wonderful time this Halloween. So that's it. That's all my plugs. Uh, Today, uh, we are talking uh, with the author of The Speed of Falling Objects. Nancy, how are you this evening?
1: I'm doing great. Thanks so much for having me.
0: Thank you so much for uh, making the time to be here. Um, if you would, uh, just go ahead and uh, tell an esteemed audience a little bit about the background of Nancy Richardson Fisher uh, and how you, uh, how you come to become the big and famous author that you are this evening.
1: Well, <laughs> I hope someday to become a big and famous author, but let's see, I started writing stories when I was a little kid like lots of writers do went to college and studied creative writing at Cornell on the East Coast and My first job was for Ringling Brothers Barnum & Bailey Circus as a traveling writer Um, Which was a very interesting first job the way that I actually was hired is they sent me to Ohio to interview King Tusk who is the largest traveling land mammal on the face of the earth and he turned out to be a big elephant I wrote a story about him, they hired me, and then I spent the next year traveling with the circus to different towns, writing stories for the entertainment section of weekly newspapers um, about the clowns who were from that town, or trapeze artists, or a clown wedding, um, so that taught me how to write really, really quickly, um, and on deadline, and never to have any sort of writer's block, because you just how to come in, get your story, and get it done. Um, and then I worked as a grant writer for UCSF, University of California, San Francisco. And while I was there, I fortuitously um, met someone from Lucasfilm and offered to write on spec for Lucasfilm. All, they have all the Star Wars books. Um, that are continuing on. The saga continues in books, so um, I wrote on spec for them, which is for free, for a year, um, while I was doing my other job, and um, eventually they hired me to write a trilogy. So I was lucky enough to write a Star Wars trilogy, and at the same time, ended up um, getting my first sport autobiography, where I co-wrote with an athlete or a coach which was another fortuitous job. I had a friend who um, was working one summer for Hyperion, and they had bought the rights to Bella Caroli's story. And um, she said, we have a pile of proposals. Why don't you write one and put it in the pile? And I did, and he read it, and he called me, and he flew me to his ranch. And from there, I started writing sport autobiographies and after that, I started writing young adult fiction. So that's it in a nutshell.
0: There is a lot to unpack there. I'm going to definitely <laughs> ask you some follow-up questions. Sure. But that is uh, either an incredibly fortuitous series of jobs and events that, that happened that led you there, or an incredibly skilled, um, applier for jobs is the wrong word. What am I looking for? Social, uh, social
1: climber, Work climber, entrepreneur? You put yourself in the way of good luck um, and see opportunities, um, and so I definitely did that, and then, of course, you have to be able to come follow through and actually produce something worthwhile, or you can't keep moving along. So the first book was Bella Caroli's story, and I guess if I had done a really bad job at that... <laughs> Then there wouldn't have been a second one. So whatever opportunities I saw that came my way, I tried to rise to the occasion of those opportunities.
0: Gotcha. So what? Uh, what does? Because again, that's that's
1: it's <laughs> an incredible string. So you got some
0: kind of some kind of magic juice that's that's got you going. That's uh, a certain skill set, a certain mindset. So tell us a little bit more. How do you prepare for finding a job that you want?
1: Gosh, I think. To me, to get a job that you want, it's take making the next right step, and being a bit of a chameleon. You know, I'm not a gymnast, but I wrote Bella's story and Nadia's story because I did a ton of research and and just kept moving forward. I'm I'm not a jockey, but I wrote Julie Crone's story because I read a, all about being a jockey and I fit into her life and her schedule so that I was permitted to live with her and travel with her. Same with Monica Seles, the tennis player. Um, so I think it's doing your research and just moving forward and not being afraid to fail. Do you have,
0: I assume, some kind of athletic ability? I know I read on your site that you do something, is a kite surfing?
1: Is um, uh, what yeah, you're doing? Love, I love kite surfing and mountain biking and backcountry skiing. Um, When I was a kid, I was a diver, and even in college, I dove a little bit, Um, so I definitely know what it's like to train, and I know what it's like to get hurt um, in your sport, Um, because divers tend to get hurt a lot, because the closer you are to the end of the board, um, the higher your score, so, you know, you're always trying to get a higher score, and you're always getting closer and closer, so I understand what it's like, yes, to, to train, but not at the level of those athletes. Definitely not at their level, but, but I can appreciate what they do. Definitely.
0: And uh, what is kite surfing, just out of curiosity?
1: So you uh, wear a harness, and there's a kite that's 25 meters, I think, above you on lines that can actually, if they wrap around you, um, it's called degloving. They could take the skin right off your bones. Um, so they're, they're, they're not lines that you could easily cut. You'd need a knife. Um, and you put a surfboard on your feet. And you go out on a really windy day in the ocean, or I live on a really huge river. River sounds strange um, to kite surf on, but we get enormous waves, and you surf on the waves using the kite to pull you.
0: So with the kite, are you lifting up off the water by a When few you want feet, to, or? you can pull
1: the bar in, and you can loft and, and jump, too. Awesome. <laughs>
0: yeah yeah. that sounds like something i would love to watch you do from the yep. safety of the beach so it sounds like a lot of good ways to get hurt and you also still have to worry about sharks my goodness <laughs> yeah
1: there are there are a few concerns i'm scared to death of sharks when i fall in the water i hear the the soundtrack for jaws so i definitely sharks are on my mind but on the river where i live obviously i don't have to worry so that's good
0: Well, I'm just curious. I uh, talked with Andy Sullivan a couple episodes back. We're checking out the archives, esteemed audience. Um, And she talked a lot about uh, going out and and being adventurous. And she went uh, cage diving with great white sharks. Wow. uh, Which I thought, well, why... And I'm 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 uh, one of the nice things about talking to so many authors is, uh, of course, for a long time I had it in my head like I think a lot of people are guilty of that. Oh, this authors must be like me. We're all the same. No, we're not. <laughs> <laughs> I like to sit back and, and watch things happen and then write about them. And then I talk with somebody like you. You you seem like you want to get your hands dirty and really get in there and uh, have an adventure.
1: I want to live in the moment. I think that um, when I do things that scare me or that push me it gets me out of my head. Otherwise, I am just constantly in my head thinking about whether it's stories or life or whatever. I'm just someone who's just, my brain is always, always going. And so it's a gift to me to do something that requires enough focus that I don't think about anything else.
0: So if you're out there worried about, what you call it, D, de- uh, getting your skin ripped off?
1: loving I'm very careful. <laughs> that doesn't happen often to people. When it does, it's really a mess. So um, I'm not worried about that.
0: Well, I think if you're out there and you're worried about maybe getting your skin ripped off, watching for sharks, you're not concerned about your revision notes, yeah. The bills that maybe have been paid, not paid.
1: Right. I'm not thinking about anything else. I'm not thinking about how to solve a problem with a character or the editorial letter that I just received or how I'm going to make those changes. All I'm thinking about is doing everything right in the moment and just enjoying it, actually.
0: Yeah, there's no, what was that comment my mother said? What did that mean?
1: Ah! Right. <laughs> no, nothing like that.
0: That's uh that gives us that gives me some kind of insight a little bit into to who I'm talking to. Yes. Adventurer.
1: <laughs> yeah. Sure.
0: And um well, let's see and how what's a stick a little bit with, uh, with your incredible streak of employment, and then I want to talk about the, the uh, speed of falling objects, sure. uh, break that one down a little bit. But so how, uh, you mentioned you had to go to Ohio to get interviewed with Barnum & Bailey. Yes. How did you get yourself into a position to be interviewed?
1: I moved to Washington, D.C., and I signed up with an employment agency, and every job they sent me on, everyone asked me how quickly I could type. And the only job that I was sent on where someone didn't ask me how quickly I could type was Ringling Brothers. And they didn't originally have this position and had just come up and they did not pay very much money. So for someone who had recently graduated from college, I was the perfect person to hire because I didn't imagine I was going to make very much money. Um, And I was willing to travel. Um, So I was I. I just interviewed, and and they said you seem interesting. We're gonna fly you to Ohio, and you're gonna interview this elephant, um, and then write a story, and we'll see if if you can do it. And and I had to do it quickly. I remember as well. So um, I I got the job. I don't think I think that I was a I was a good timing because um, they really hadn't interviewed anyone else probably. So it that just worked out. And you know it was it's a challenging job. I mean I don't think that many people would actually have loved it Um, because you're always on the road and you're always in an arena, a windowless arena. And for me, uh, I ended up quitting, I think a little over a year after I started um, because I couldn't handle being around wild animals in captivity, it was just incredibly sad. The performers are amazing and their skills are amazing and the way they pass those down through generations is really wonderful to see. Um, but the animals, it just broke my heart. Um, and it's something that I promised myself that when I was in a position where I could do something to shine a light on wild animals in captivity and also in the wild and specifically elephants, that that was something that I wanted to do. And that's skipping way ahead, but that's one of the reasons why I wrote my first novel, When Elephants Fly, um, because I wanted to shine a light on, on what happens to these animals. So, and create a story that, because once people care about something, they're willing to do something about it. Um, So create a story where people could really empathize with the characters, and one of which is an elephant calf, so that maybe that they would be encouraged to actually try and help solve a problem.
0: So that's a promise you made to yourself? You said that's what, eight years later?
1: Oh, uh, that
0: that's fulfilled.
1: Fifteen or twenty years later, when I wrote back, oh. so it took a long time. I mean, I always support, you know, different organizations to try and protect endangered endangered species. But until I really kind of figured out what my way was to try and make a difference, took me a while.
0: So uh, was, and I promise we will absolutely talk a great deal about the speed of falling objects. Yes, of course. Uh, but since we're here, let's talk a little bit about when elephants fly. Um, how long, was that your first
1: novel that you wrote? Yeah, so before that I wrote a book called Pandora's Key and I self-published it because it was my first young adult novel and I just didn't know if anybody would want to read anything I wrote. And it ended up doing pretty well and I ended up getting an agent because of it. And that's when I started writing One Elephants Slide. Um, and that's about a young woman named Lily who has an overwhelming family history of mental health conditions. Um, Pretty much all the women on her mother's side have had schizophrenia. Um, And so she's trying to live this super careful life to avoid triggering the stress that would trigger that condition. Um, She goes to a zoo as a local newspaper intern, sees an elephant calf born, and sees the mother violently reject the calf, and she becomes part of that calf's life. She becomes a caretaker, and when that calf is claimed by a circus, she goes with the cat to, to help the transition and ultimately goes on this crazy, desperate road trip to save the calf's life and risk her sanity and freedom, but also find her own version of, of freedom along the way. So it combines two things, you know, elephant conservation and um, a focus on mental health conditions and living so in the moment.
0: We know where the elephant conservation aspect comes from. Yes. Why the interest in uh, mental health?
1: So I have a really dear friend whose mom um, has bipolar condition, and my friend grew up knowing that she had about a 10% chance, when you have a parent who has that kind of a condition, you have about a 10% chance of also suffering from some kind of mental health condition. And so my friend lived in the moment despite that fear, which I think is an incredibly hard thing to do. She went to college, she pursued her dreams, she got married, she had a daughter, and I started thinking about how we all have things hanging over our heads, whether they're as big as what she faced or as small as, you know, I've got a tricky back. It goes out all the time. Everybody's got something. And the challenge is always to live in the moment and find something that you love more than yourself and that you're passionate about and that you're willing to fight for. And so... We spoke a little bit earlier about living in the moment and why I do the sports I do. I do them because it's such a gift to be able to live in the moment and it's the only way I can really make that happen for myself, but I wanted readers to think about that and think about the things hanging over their heads and their fears and carve out a moment for themselves too. And I also wanted them to care about elephants and try and do something to protect them because in the next 20 years, they'll be extinct in the wild if no one does anything. Really? Yeah. It's really sad.
0: Yeah, that I hadn't heard that statistic before. Is that just because of uh, poachers or climate conditions?
1: Um, a lot. It's it's because environment people are encroaching upon their environments, and a lot of times people don't understand that um, elephants can breed provide a lot of tourism and there can be a synergy with living with elephants in an environment. So there are a lot of organizations in Africa, like Roteti Elephant Sanctuary, that are teaching communities how to caretake the elephants that are in their midst and create tourism opportunities to um, gain a lot more money for their community. And then the other thing is poaching. Poaching is always a huge problem. So for ivory, for meat,
0: Got you. Yeah. And then uh, if we could take one quick step back to Pandora's Key, because I didn't see that yeah. one on uh, Amazon. Is that still available someplace?
1: I think it is. I think I haven't, you know, it's funny. I haven't looked in a while. I thought I should go back and read it and see where it was and what I'm doing now compared to then. But yeah, it was about um, a descendant of Pandora who doesn't know she's a descendant, but she's been tasked, um, tasked with... Um, protecting the final fury that's still in Pandora's box, which is Annihilation. So there's a secret society trying to find the box, and she's coming into her own and realizing she has these magical abilities and learning who she is during that process. So it was the first in a trilogy, and I've written the second two, but I haven't done anything with them yet.
0: What What are you waiting for?
1: <laughs> I've been a little busy.
0: Just a little.
1: <laughs> So
0: you threw that one up just what, with uh, uh, KDP or?
1: Yes, I just put it up on Amazon and it ended up getting enough attention that I ended up with an agent.
0: So yeah. if you don't mind me asking, what's, what's enough attention? What does that look like?
1: Gosh, um, I'm trying to remember back. I know it was like in the top five in its category for quite a while. Um, and in like the top, maybe 5,000 for a fair amount of time. And I think it was just, that um, mythology stories were very popular then, and when I wrote it, they weren't, and so they were just kind of becoming popular, and so I threw it up there, and I think people thought, well, I just read this other mythology story, and here's one, and look how cheap it is. I'll just get it and see, see what I think, and, and people liked it.
0: You were in the top five for an extended period of time. Wasn't it just a rain of money? The Richardson Fisher's household? No.
1: No. (laughs) (laughs) No. It doesn't work that way, unfortunately.
0: (laughs) I guess that answers that question. Yeah. Because my next question was going to be, if you're in the top five, why not? And you've already written those other two books. Why not get them all out there and uh, triple your return? You know, I got
1: an agent, and then we started talking about next project, and um, I just dove into the next one and kind of left that behind. I, You know, I was so excited about telling the next story that I didn't go back to it. So I I will at some point. um, I have like two or three more things that I'm working on or writing now, and then I figure when there's a break, I'll go back.
0: Gotcha. So what was it that you said the agent reached out to you because you were doing so well?
1: Well, so I reached out to a bunch of agents and wrote, letters and said, Hey, look, look at me. <laughs> <You know? laughs> look, look at this banner or whatever that's on Amazon. And so, uh, you know, a handful of agents wrote back. I, I mean, you know what this process is like. You have a big Excel spreadsheet and 10 people say no. And you send 10 more queries out. And, um, ultimately I found an agent who wanted to represent me. So I just went from there and I'm no longer with that agent because we just went in different directions, and I found someone who kind of wanted to represent what I want to write now.
0: So when you went to the agents, were you uh, pitching your, did you already have When Elephants Fly in mind, or? I had so it written. It was, okay, so, so it was had, a traditional query, just, by yeah. the way, I'm already a big deal, so that makes things easier.
1: I'm this much of a big, no. look <laughs> It was a big deal for a month or two. Um, no, I, you know, I just sent them that manuscript, the, the one elephant slime manuscript. And then, you know, when it took a while, I, I think it took seven or eight months of full time querying. I mean, I really just tried not to take it personally. And I think like I saw when you sent a list of questions and you were saying what advice to give writers, it. If you believe in your story and if you're you know a decent writer and you've got a cohesive, good story, you have to believe in it and then you have to look at querying like a numbers game because that's what it is. because that's why they make chocolate and vanilla. Not everybody loves everything. I love zombies. I know you love zombies. not everyone loves zombies. you know you're gonna query some agents who are gonna say no. but um, I just I just 10 10 queries went out. Eight rejections came back, maybe one I'll look at a partial, and I just kept sending.
0: Gotcha. So, well, a couple questions there. Uh, one, when are we going to see a Nancy Richardson Fisher zombie novel? When's that happening?
1: You know, other people do it so much better than me. Um, but I, I just appreciate zombies. Like, 28 Days Later is my favorite movie ever for a zombie movie. What, what's your favorite zombie movie?
0: Oh, zombie movie! Ooh, that's a that's a tricky question. Um, I'm tempted to say Dawn of the Dead, the Zack Snyder remake. Um, that's definitely very high up there. Although Twenty Eight Days Later is is right there, neck and neck.
1: I loved um, it. I love the character development in that one.
0: My brother said something after we I saw that with him, and he said something with me that stayed with me forever after. Uh, and it was um, well, oh, Shaun of the Dead. Probably edges out a couple yeah, of those, uh, but about 28 days later, because, you know, spoilers slightly by the time we get to the end, the whole deal is our hero uh, scarecrow. I can't remember his name. <laughs> Billy
1: Murphy.
0: Yes, uh, he's uh, all worked up and covered in blood. And you can't tell if he's infected or not because mankind is just that violent as well. Uh, my brother called that the zombies don't suck, you suck ending. <laughs> That's going with me forever because every time I watch a zombie story or read a zombie novel, I'm looking for that. Zombies don't suck, you suck. Um,
1: there's just something about zombie stories that just, it's kind of like, um, did you ever read The Stand, Stephen King's The Stand? Oh, of course. So it's the same thing where there's, there's something that is, so threatening that's taken out so many people, and then humanity is so tiny, and you band together and you see under pressure who people become Where, whether they retain their humanity or, like, in um, The Walking Dead, do they become Megan, you know, or not, you know? And I, the, to me, that's what's always so fascinating about anything zombie is how people either stay good or turn into a worse monster than the one they're fighting.
0: Which unfortunately I think uh, is most of us in everyday life. (laughs) Right. Because a nice nice zombie story will get you to where um, you're reading about just your struggles, but amplified times a hundred. Exactly. It puts things in perspective. Like I'm really concerned about whether or not I'm going to pay this bill. I'm concerned about what's happening with my family. But if zombies were attacking, that would really raise the stake. Same concern, but now right. I feel better about my smaller issue because I don't have to kill a bunch of zombies.
1: <laughs> That's a great point. That's a great point. That's why I think we love them.
0: And one book I never get tired of plugging is I Zombie by Hugh Howie. Uh, I've got a bunch of favorite zombie books, uh, including uh, Courtney Summers' Please Remain Calm. That's a great one. Um, but I Zombie is, it's not a spoiler because he tells you right in chapter one. He writes from the perspective of zombies, but the deal is that the people are still who they are inside. They just no longer have any control over themselves. Oh, so, like, one God. gentleman has to watch himself attack and kill his mother. Oh and my gosh. That's just brutal. But that's his exactly. uh, thematic concern is that we're all kind of like that in real life already because so much of what we do is based on momentum and we're all kind of watching ourselves act on a regular basis. That's
1: that's a really good point. I haven't read that, but I'm going to put it on my list because that's
0: how oh, it's, it's worth it. Yeah, I, I'm always thrilled when I find a slightly new take on zombies where it's an insight. Oh, I haven't seen that one before. Right. And that one was like, like, I got shut the front door. This is like zombie book number 50 that I'm reading, and I haven't seen this one yet.
1: <laughs> yeah, Go I on. love that, too. I think that's why I love Stephen King in general, because every time I read something that he's written, a lot of times, I mean, I, I write young adult novels. I love young adult novels. But because I write young adult novels, a lot of times I know where they're going. Um, I never really know necessarily where Stephen King's going. So every time he has a new book come out, I'm always so excited to get to read it and not even try and figure out where it's going. Did
0: you read uh, The Institute? Yep.
1: I just finished it last week. It was
0: excellent, isn't it?
1: I absolutely loved it. Couldn't put it down. It's interesting to me, too, that you have a 12-year-old boy. And, yes, he was a genius. But it's an adult novel. And that adults are so fascinated with his, because a lot of his stories have young protagonists but that they really appeal to adults.
0: I always think my, my favorite young adult novel is It, even though it's technically not a young adult novel. Right. It's close enough. <laughs> right.
1: Well, because I know, I mean, I read those book, a lot of those books as a young adult, too. So, you know. Or, like, The Gunslinger. That's a young adult novel, but it's got some very adult themes to it. Um, and also, I, for me, one of the best endings of a really super long saga for me. Did you read the Gunslinger? Oh, of course. So the the end, which I'm not going to say, obviously, I just went okay, perfect, like I'm good with it. Which I'm always worried when it's that long that it's not going to wrap up in a way that I like. But I love the way it wrapped up.
0: I kind of saw that one coming by about book two. Oh, you did. And it was just there was one plenty of wonderful stories that. Right. And he, I think he explicitly states a couple of times, don't worry about the ending, it's the journey, uh, which is the best way to to go about it.
1: Right, right. Uh, I'm not
0: crazy about Song of Susanna. I felt like, because he had his car accident in there, um, that he wrote four amazing novels, or right up to Wolves of the Cala. Uh, My wife thinks I'm crazy. Wizard of Glass is my favorite. She violently disagrees with me. (laughs) She wrote her master's thesis on the gunslinger. So she went through uh, three different versions and did a um, editorial analysis, but they call it something else, where you basically go through and list every change made and try and uh, figure out why those changes were made over three different versions, which is why I know that in the gunslinger, at one point he comes into the town of Toll, I believe, uh, and Roland says, uh, "Hey, how they how are how's it hanging?" And then like ten years later, Stephen King, when more mature, more wizened, comes back and says, How's it hanging? No, how are they hanging? And then uh, in the uh, newest final version, it's uh, Long Days and Pleasant Nights <laughs> to get the high speech written. That's just one of those things I found fascinating. I, I love thinking of young Stephen King 10 years in after writing The Gunslinger. How's it hanging? What was young me thinking?
1: <laughs> right, right. That's awesome. Hey. <laughs>
0: But, um, oh, because he had that accident, I felt like Wolves of the Cala is the last of the uh, one-off adventures. They're all connected, but right. the first uh, five of them all feel like their own thing. And then Song of Susanna kind of bleeds into the Dark Tower, and I felt like there were things that were a little bit rushed. Where I wish, now that we know, of course, that he was going to be around with plenty of time
1: to right. space this
0: not- out a little. But I wish he'd waited to publish him and just kind of hang on to him for a bit and then revised him later.
1: He probably wasn't sure what was going to happen. I mean, that was a big accident. So I can imagine he felt a sense of pressure to keep producing.
0: Oh, I'm sure he was terrified, but I wish that Walter O'Dim specifically had, had met a better end. Right. Without spoiling. That was one of those that made me set the book down. I go, man, really? <laughs> but that ending was, was
1: phenomenal. Yeah, the ending was perfect for me.
0: And with the Institute, uh, I thought that was one of his best in, in many years, um, probably since Revival, uh, which was my previous favorite of his more modern ones. But there were a couple of moments in there where I, if I had been in his critique group, I'd have said, Stephen, I, d- I just don't buy that today's kids are... Um, talking about uh, Gone with the Wind maybe, maybe that maybe right. they are uh, I didn't buy that they were going to say Chillins <laughs> that's, that's an old one that's a, right. that's a Stephen King classic and there were a couple of actors uh, that they talked about that even for a boy genius at the age of 12 I didn't think he'd reach back to Stephen King's childhood for that reference no, but I those know are, this are small small things when what he's doing is so next level beyond most books I ever read it's like, right. ah, let him have it
1: <laughs> exactly if he wants to put
0: those in it's okay there were a couple that made me cringe a little bit, like mm, is that is that what happens when you get to the stevie king level nobody says hey mr king don't you think that twitter might have thoughts on this <laughs>
1: probably they don't
0: <laughs> probably there's no sensitivity reader that comes in and <laughs> no. And I, Stephen King, J.K. Rowling, these are the, I try never to author shame or call, they're on the list of it's okay, they're so big, they don't know I exist, it's fine. <laughs> right, right. So before we uh, get back to uh, that, I want to know more about that transition from self-published to traditional published, but well, what's your favorite Stephen King novel?
1: It's either, well, Shawshank Redemption for novella. I love it. I think it's perfect. Um, and either lot or The Stand. The Stand was the first book that I remember just not wanting to finish and just being carried away by the entire saga. I just I loved everything about it. I could see it as a movie. I just it just completely took me away. But Salem's Lot, I love the darkness of it.
0: So both of those. Did you read the original version of The Stand first followed by the extended version or did you just start with the extended?
1: I think I've only ever read the original version. I don't think I've read the extended version. So I think I've only, I've only read the original.
0: Oh yeah, it's time to... Whenever I can't show?
1: figure out what I want to read or I'm on a really long trip, I always go back and read some book that I loved before and I want to read again.
0: What are other books that you've loved before that have that you've been able to take things from to help out your writing?
1: I love The Sparrow by Mary Doria Russell. I don't know. If, have you read that? I
0: haven't read that one.
1: It's about a Jesuit mission to an alien planet that on Earth, they hear music. So they know that this other um, culture has intelligence. And so this Jesuit mission is formed in the near future. And they ride an asteroid um, over a course of many years to get to this other planet. And she's a cultural anthropologist. So it's really interesting once they get there, what happens. I don't want to ruin it but everything that you think that you understand about another culture, you read the next book, Children of God, and you realize that everything you assumed is incorrect. And it just makes me think about life and people and how your first assumption comes from your background and who you are. And it probably has nothing to do with who that other person really is. It always makes me take pause. It makes me think about my characters on a deeper level, and she's just such a beautiful writer that I I just love everything that she does. So The Sparrow and Children of God are, are two. I just read The Guest Book, which I thought was unbelievable. Um, I just read The Great Believers. Um, so those, like, every time I read something new that I love, I forget the other ones, but those are the ones that right now really stick in my head. Um, also, The Talisman and Dark House, Peter Straub, I love those books, um, anything that carries me away and that creates characters that I really care about, whether I, or, or hate, I, you know, it's fine too. I, I just want a story to elicit like a, a big response for me. So those are my current, my current group of books.
0: It's not quite like reading a book where the primary motivation to keep those pages turning is you want to see the guy you hate the, the character you hate get the just comeuppance they deserve,
1: <laughs> right? Or I want to find something to relate to with that character, understand why they're in the story and what their purpose is.
0: Do you read uh, still casually, or when you read, I like I highlight every book I ever look at and make notes. Uh, Because I want to know what the writer did, why they did it. Do you do that? Or are you able to sit down and just have the magic wash over you?
1: I try to just enjoy it. And if I'm not, or if something's really, really bothering me about the story, I tend to put it down because I don't have a lot of time to just read for fun. I'm always afraid when I'm reading that I'll pull something in um, to what I'm writing. So if I'm writing young adult, I'm usually not reading young adult. Um, I just, I just, I've always just been afraid of that. Even when I wrote my first sport autobiography, I remember the editor, it was my first one. And he said, you really should read a bunch of sport autobiographies because Bella Carole picked me. I don't think that, that Hyperion would have chosen me, um, to be the writer for him. And I didn't read any because I didn't want to, I wanted to just come at it with, you know, just he picked me for a reason and I wanted to tell a story in a different way, maybe. So I tend to only read what I'm not writing at the moment. And I, I don't. I don't take notes. A lot of times I read on my Kindle. Um, so I, I would rarely, only my own stuff, I'll put on my Kindle when I need to edit in a different way. And then I'll, I'll put notes on my Kindle to go through later at the problem passages. Um, but I try not to. I, I really, I want the magic. You know.
0: Oh, yeah. That's uh, one reason for me to do audiobooks. books uh, is then oh, I can't exactly. stop myself and, and, and make all the notes.
1: Exactly.
0: If I sit down and read, it's usually because it's uh, somebody I'm going to talk to on the podcast or a book I'm going to review at the blog. And then if I'm listening to something, that's that's my fun time.
1: Right. Right. So that's
0: how I got through Game of Thrones because tragically, George R. R. Martin is not appearing on the podcast. Although, you're welcome, Mr. Martin, if you're listening. Hey, <laughs> <shouldn't. love> you. <laughs> mm-hmm. So, okay, well, let's go back. Um, Except something that occurred to me while we were talking uh, you self published Pandora's Key, but that's yeah. after you'd already written the Star Wars trilogy, right? Yes. So, well, let's talk a little bit about Star Wars and that I absolutely, I promise. For the love of God, we will talk about the speed of falling objects. Available yep. now, yep. esteemed audience. Go get your copy. <laughs> so, with Star Wars, that was the uh, the Je- Junior Jedi Knights, right?
1: Yes, Junior Jedi Knights.
0: So, you were working with Lucasfilm for free for a year before you got that opportunity? Yes.
1: So, I had gone, I don't think I said this, said this already, I had gone with a friend to pick up backstage passes for a Grateful Dead show. Um, This friend did some work with Lucasfilm, with her job and with Dark Horse Comics. So we went to pick up the passes. I met this woman, Lucy Wilson. I offered to write on spec for her. Um, And she would just say, hey, I have this idea, write a chapter. And I would just write a chapter and send it to her and nothing happened. And then I think maybe a year and a half into it, she said, would you like to write a Junior Jedi trilogy? And of course I said, yes, I love all things Star Wars. I think, you know, being a part of that universe is just a huge opportunity. And so my character was Anakin Solo, who is um, the youngest son of Han and Leia in the adult um, novels. And he goes to a Jedi Academy and he has all these adventures basically. So it was quick actually. I think I read all three because they were middle grade in the course of maybe a year. So it was a, a quick project.
0: So that had to be, uh, that, that's old canon, because then they go through and they p- picked a cutoff date, and now everything's new canon.
1: Yeah, yeah, exactly.
0: Gotcha. And so I know when we talked with uh, Daniel Jose Older, he wrote um, a book directly tied in the Solos, so he was allowed to read the screenplay before the movie came out, and he had to sit there with a, uh, he, he wasn't sure if the guard was armed or not, but they were wow. right on him. So did you did you get access to they open up the Star Wars archives? You can look at anything you want.
1: No, no. I mean these these weren't the adult novels, and so oh, your your cat's behind you.
0: Oh um, hi, Mabel. <laughs> welcome to the show. <laughs> yeah, they weren't,
1: um, they weren't the adult novels. It wasn't that that serious. You know, they have so many copy editors that go through what you write to make sure that you don't step on any toes and that everything that happens is okay. the planets exist or could exist that the characters or creatures could exist um so no it it wasn't i wish that would have been super fun but it wasn't like that i would go to the ranch i would meet with with lucy i would have lunch sometimes and then i'd go off and write and so um were you
0: just okay well you get in there and how much freedom and flexibility do you have on a project like that Uh, because obviously you've got to respect what's what's come before you at that point do you get to call the shots in terms of your own plot or
1: yes so i um they were going to be three separate books i decided i wanted them to be a trilogy with an overriding story of rescuing these people who are inside this golden globe that that um, Anakin had found, and I could have him travel to different planets. They really let me write the story I wanted to write. So, a lot of freedom, actually. Um, They were willing to just let me turn it into a trilogy and have fun with it.
0: And do you have plans to go and, and revisit the Star Wars universe at some point in the future?
1: Well, doesn't everyone want to revisit, but I have no plans right now to do that. So... Creating my
0: Actually, own- I—I'll uh, be honest, I don't because I would be paralyzed with fear to be in that universe where so many fans know so many different things about it that I would prefer to create like a Star Wars knockoff. <laughs>
1: right. Well, I think the adult ones would be really challenging. You know, the kid ones are, are much more forgiving. The adult ones—you've got people who really would hold you, hold your feet to the fire. I'm sure. Oh, sure.
0: The rest of my life, I'd be, anytime I went to do a, a speaking engagement, <clears throat> Mr. Kent, so-called author, I have but, a question.
1: I do get funny notes every once in a while from, from kids who have read, who have, have very specific questions to ask, that they're very immersed in the universe, which for me is now, you know, 15 or 20 years ago. So I'm not quite as immersed in the universe. I would have to go back and, and reread in order to be able to answer very specific questions.
0: How was it she said that when you went to publish Pandora's Key, you you didn't know a great deal about publishing, but you'd already you already had the quan, You already had your your Star Wars trilogy.
1: You know what? They're so separate. Like every time you want to do something different. If I wanted to just keep writing sport autobiographies and be represented by IMG, that was my agency. Once once I got Bella Caroli's book, then I got an agent. So for the next, I don't know. Eight or nine years, I did a book a year, a sport autobiography a year, because I had an agent and those agents also represented all those athletes. So when a book was purchased for Monica Salas, okay, what writer do we also represent in our literary branch that we can pair with Monica Salas? So if I wanted to keep doing that, that would be fine. But just like right now, I'm writing YA, if I want to switch and write an adult novel, it's a whole different group of editors that I have to prove myself to. Not agent, because now I have an agent who will represent me across whatever genre I want to write, but um, every single time you, you really have to prove yourself again. Just like if I wanted to write a children's picture book, I would have to prove myself again. Um, so it's, it's not, at least for me, it wasn't that easy to kind of skip to a different genre. I I needed to find a different agent and, and have a whole different mindset.
0: Gotcha. And we'll uh, hopefully have time to talk a little bit about uh, sports biography writing as well, because I'm very interested in how that's different from writing fiction. But for the love of God, you've been (sighs) so patient as I ask you about everything else under the sun. Let's talk about the speed of falling objects. Um, so if you would, just, uh, I'm terrible about summarizing other people's biographies and other people's books. Uh, so if you would, just kind of go ahead and tell the esteemed audience a little bit about, about your new novel.
1: Sure. I'm terrible about summarizing my own, so feel free to interject <laughs> if, if I'm leaving something out. But The Speed of flying Objects is about a timid young woman named Danger Danielle Warren. Her nickname is Danny. And she perceives herself as defective and inferior and, a, and an embarrassment based on a childhood accident and also because of her parents' divorce and her dad's abandonment of the family and of her. And her father is a famous TV survivalist named Cougar, and he calls her out of the blue and he invites her to be in an episode of a show that's going to be filmed in the Amazon rainforest with a teen movie idol. And she jumps at the chance because... She wants to prove to her dad she's worthy of his love. They're playing crashes in the Amazon, and Danny's forced to face everything that terrifies her, including a secret about the father she idolizes, and the movie star, of course, that she's falling for, um, and to discover her unique abilities and strengths in order to save herself, the people she loves, and to find the way back home. There, ta-da. That's
0: perfect. <laughs> And it is a high, a high octane suspenseful thriller. There yeah. is a lot of uh, a lot of chapters so you have to keep going keep going. Don't put this book down. And <laughs> yeah. yet it is rooted uh, very much in characters and that fundamental father-daughter relationship as well as the relationship with the mother even though the mother is not in the, the book as often. Um, why is it that that, that that was crucial to have those interpersonal relationships when you've already got Danny lost in the Amazon. Um, she she's got her she's got a plate full already <laughs> right
1: she does well there's there's two things for this book that I was obsessed with one is I'm obsessed with survival stories like zombies even as we we talked about about putting people in horrible situations because you don't know who they are and they don't know who they are or who the people around them are until they are forced to be in a survival type situation. The other thing is that I'm really interested in in how we define ourselves. And in order to show why Danny feels that she's defective and inferior and an embarrassment, I needed to show you what her relationships were with her parents. Because I think that we all, as both children and adults, create a definition of ourselves based on Our past, our childhood, our experiences, our perceptions, our misperceptions, and even the lies that were told. And so I wanted to create this character who you could see through her relationships, how she came up with the definition of who she is. And then I wanted to put her in a situation where that definition was challenged to the point, both through learning some really hard truths about her father, but also realizing her own unique strengths where she realized that she had created herself on a faulty foundation and that from that moment forward, she could choose who she wanted to be in the moment and who she wanted to be in the future and become the hero of her own life story. But more than that, become the narrator of her own life and define herself. Because I I feel like in my own life, That's been something that I've worked through and I look at my friends and we have these discussions about how they see themselves and like, for example, um, my mom used to tell me I was intellectually lazy. So I grew up thinking that I was just kind of not very smart, right? And then at a certain point in my life, it's like, how many books do I have to publish and how much, what do I need to do to see myself as somebody who is intelligent and capable and I kind of wanted to write this young adult story where kids could ask that question sooner and not carry baggage into their adult life that they don't need to carry and become their own navigator. So that's a long answer to your question. I'm sorry if I went too, too oh, wide. That's there. Perfect.
0: There is no such thing as too long-winded on this show.
1: <laughs> that's one
0: of the reasons I like to go as as long as we do, because there's time for all kinds of incredible answers we wouldn't get if I just had to say in two minutes or less. Tell me about your novel. Right. right. <laughs> so, um, one thing I was curious is, is you take at Danny's eye, uh, and again, it's it's a and and, and for a good reason. There's a reveal that's going to tie into without spoiling uh, everything we've been talking about. But why? Why give, I'm um, going facetiously ask this question, because I know that torturing your protagonist makes them more interesting. Yeah. But why, uh, why take Danny's eye uh, early on when she has plenty of problems already being stuck in the Amazon and her relationships with her, um, with her parents and with her, how she views herself?
1: Because I wanted her to have something concrete to blame. I wanted it to be, for her, her perception to be internalized. It, if she was just a kid who was going through normal kind of parent stuff i'm not sure she would have defined herself in the same way and also she's the kind of person who she's a lot like me in the sense that i will always apologize even before i know if i've done something wrong i'm just like it's my fault you know <laughs> i just i'll just take it you know and And so I wanted her to be this person who kind of grew up always feeling, you know, my parents got divorced. Was it because of my eye? Um, My mom is bitter. Was it? It's because it's because I did something wrong. You know, it's my fault. You know, and and so I wanted that to be a very concrete part of who she was early on, so that later on she could look back and and see when it happened and understand that that wasn't the impetus for any of those bad things that happened in her life.
0: So how old were you when you figured out uh, that you could stop apologizing for all the things that weren't your fault?
1: See, I'm one of those people who carries the baggage. So I still, <laughs> I still, I, so young adult authors, I truly believe we all have all these issues and we're trying to still work through them. We haven't quite moved past them. Um, my husband always says, stop apologizing because I, anything will come up and I'll just go, oh, I'm sorry. And it's ridiculous, right? But um, I recognize that I'll apologize and I'll say, hey, wait, 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 that's not my fault. I don't really mean it. But so it, I'm a work in progress with the apologies.
0: So you're writing a, uh, a better outcome for Danny that you, yeah. you hope to uh, be inspired by and follow suit.
1: I wish I'd read this story when I was, you know, Danny's age. And I think the beautiful thing about young adult novels right now is that they tackle all these incredible issues. And as you know, right now is a time in young adult novels where authors are taken to task for a lot of different things, for, you know, not own voices or ableism or whatever it is, Um, racism, all different kinds of things. Some are valid, some are not. But I think the danger is if you don't tackle those Topics and you should tackle them in a really conscious way and to the best of your ability. Um, But if they're not tackled, then your readers miss out on learning things about characters and by learning them about the characters, challenging and learning things about themselves. So I hope that young adult novels continue to tackle some really difficult issues and topics this this the speed of falling objects isn't that book i'm not tackling prejudice and racism or anything but i'm just saying overall globally i just think it's so important because young people need to read those stories so that they can deal with things before they become adults
0: so what was it when did you decide that young adult was where you wanted to operate, or is it? Are you eventually hoping to expand beyond young adult, or are you comfortable sticking with teen protagonists?
1: I love writing young adult. I would love to write adult as well. It, whatever the story is, I think, that comes into my head. If it's a young adult story, I'll tell it as a young adult story, but if it's an adult story, I'm excited to do that as well.
0: Gotcha. So I discovered relatively quickly that although I like occasionally writing about teens, I don't want to stick with them that long. And the one young adult novel I've written is The Zombie Book. And it great because I could kill most of them. And then I didn't have to worry about uh, social dynamics in high school and and, and all that fun stuff. And, of course, we, we don't really have a lot of that here since we're so far removed in the Amazon. And this would work as an adult novel. We just happen to have a teen protagonist. Right.
1: Right. And it just that that was the story that, you know, I'd like to say that I. I have these long, drawn out conversations in my head about whether this is adult or young adult, but but really, it just is a young adult novel to me that is crossover in the sense that it's all the stuff that even as adults, we still deal with like that moment when you see who your parents are for the first time. And when you decide whether you're going to be able to forgive their flaws, I have friends who don't talk to their parents, you know, who didn't forgive those flaws. Um, Those are things that adults can read and relate to in the speed of falling objects, as much as a young adult can relate to um, some of the relationships between the, the adult characters as well. So it's not that, I don't know. I I don't really think, Oh, this is a young adult novel or an adult novel. I just, I kind of just, Think of it as a novel, even though you have to classify yourself, right? Theoretically. Yeah. Uh,
0: if you don't, then uh, someone someone
1: will. will. <laughs>
0: <laughs> of course, I'm uh, still at the uh, foolish, the optimistic stage with my five year old. That when he gets to a certain age and starts looking around at how imperfect the adults were or are, he'll say that nope, Dad's Dad's still perfect. Everything <laughs> Dad does is makes a complete sense. So he won't have that issue. But it's unfortunate for other teens.
1: right right. well good luck with that i hope that works for you
0: (laughs) so how do you with a novel like this do you start with okay i definitely want to do a survivor a a survival story set in the amazon and work backward from there do you start with i want to do danny and her relationships and wouldn't it be nice to be in the amazon
1: i started with danny and her relationships and originally i was going to set this in a mountaintop um I, I have more experience rock climbing and mountaineering and skiing and with snow, um, but there are no bugs or snakes or scorpions or um, it's just the stakes are so much higher. You can walk off a cliff on the mountain, you can freeze, you can drop into a cooler, but it just seemed like there was, there, what is it? There are 3,600 different kinds of spiders. There are 2.6 million insects, and those are only the ones classified. Seventeen kinds of venomous snakes. It's hot, it's raining, it's cold, it's like the Amazon just seemed like the perfect place to really, really stress Danny out um, and tap into a lot of her fears, which are some of my fears, like spiders, snakes, scorpions. I when I started doing my research, I would take a piece of paper and I would hold it over the spider. On the screen, so I can read about the spider. I got to the point I can look at snakes and I can look at certain spiders, but I can't. I can't look at tarantulas, like the really hairy spiders. I can't look at those still. Um, but it just seemed like it seemed like the right environment for a lot of bad things to happen.
0: Oh, certainly. It's a, it's a good spot. Yeah, And of course, if you go to someplace like it was Everest now, where there's almost like a line you have to wait in and people are freezing to death in the line because there's so many people trying to get to the summit.
1: (laughs) Yeah. And I love those real life stories. I loved, you know, reading a lot of those stories about people trying to get to the top of of the mountains, but um, it it didn't seem right for, for Danny, nor did it seem conducive to a little romance, um, too cold. (laughs) Um,
0: Sure. You can't kiss if you're worried about your lips immediately frostbiting and falling off afterward.
1: (laughs) Exactly. Didn't seem like the right environment. So yeah. So after I figured out the things I wanted to address in in the story, then I picked the environment.
0: Something that stuck with was uh, The Terror by Dan Simmons. Uh, The characters there are, are in the Arctic. And at one point, I One character casually mentions that your teeth can become so cold that they'll just explode in your head, which I had no idea could happen.
1: That's horrible. (laughs) horrible. That's horrible. Well, and frostbite, and you lose your digits, and your hands turn black, and your feet turn black, and it just, yeah. Well, you
0: expect that. A couple lost fingers, sure, but your whole jaw explodes. Oh, my goodness.
1: (laughs) That would be the White Walkers. That would be more Game of Thrones.
0: That would be something else. My goodness. Yeah. We're talking about the Amazon. So how much research do you do? Do you do any kind of method writing? Like my friend Mike Mullen, author of Ashfall, that I promote every so often. Yes. Um, when he was writing his survival story, it's about uh, when the other stone blows up. and uh, I
1: read
0: it. Down. Oh, okay, great.
1: Oh, yeah.
0: So Mike ate uh, cat food, is what he'll admit to. But I'm convinced he found a way to eat some human flesh also. <laughs> <Wow>. <laughs> because he's like... When he wrote the third one, he drove um, to the particular town where it was set and put some blood on the sidewalk to see which way it would flow so that when he described it in his novel, it was exact. He'd been there. He would put some blood down. Um, So I'm convinced that that at some point, although he'll never admit to it, he ate some human flesh. (laughs) So do do you do that? Do you go out to the Amazon? Are you putting yourself in some kind of survival mindset? No,
1: (laughs) (laughs) remember, I'm afraid of bugs, but I I have spent some time in Costa Rica. I had a lot of tarantulas in my room. I had tarantulas in the shower. I had tarantulas drop onto my bed. Um, So I have experience with tarantulas and with large snakes. Um, I've spent some time in Brazil where they have the, the millipedes that sting. So I've actually had those in my shoes and my clothes. Um, I saw a rattlesnake today on my bike ride. Um, So we have a lot of rattlesnakes around here. So we see a lot of rattlesnakes. But um, I did not feel the need to go into the Amazon and build a shelter. There are so many survivalists who are on YouTube who have done that already and done it in a way that teaches me how to build shelters, tie knots, get water, start fires. So I just immersed myself in just tons of articles and how-to videos. I talked to um, veterinarians at the local zoo talking about different snakes and spiders. And um, and that was basically how I did my research. And, and I actually was challenged by my publisher to go to the zoo and do a behind-the-scenes tour where I overcome my fears and hold tarantulas and snakes and whatnot. And... I decided that everyone is allowed to have some fear in life and I'm embracing those fears and I decided not to do that. I think it would have been very funny for everybody else, but honestly, I think I would have passed out. I can handle the snakes, but not the spiders. I can't even, when I'm thinking about them and how they move, I can't even really stand it. (laughs) So, So it was wonderful to do it to Danny and Cougar and everybody else in the Speed of Falling Objects. Um, That was great. From the confines of my safe little writing room, it was wonderful to be able to do that for them.
0: (laughs) See, there's the writer thing I was talking about earlier. There's where you're a little bit more adventurous because you're out there with the kite surfing. Right. Yes, I'm 100% with you.
1: Yes, I embrace. Like, my Mike
0: favorites. and I would uh, argue that even if I don't know, let's say eating cat food makes your description of eating cat food. I don't know, ten percent better, twenty percent better. Is it worth it?
1: <laughs> and who knows if you're right or you're wrong? There are very few of your readers who are actually going to know what that cat food tastes like. Yeah, so what are
0: these readers that are munching cat food while they're reading? I'm like no,
1: right? <laughs> no, they're not. So I'm okay not actually going into the the Amazon. I don't even like mosquitoes.
0: (laughs) (laughs) And you will definitely encounter some of those. Yes. Uh, And then let's talk just a little bit about uh, guest price. Um, Was he modeled after any particular teen movie star? Where did you draw that character from? And why was it important that he be famous?
1: First of all, it was important that he was famous because of how Cougar would feel about him. It wasn't important that he was famous for Danny. Um, If he was just a great guy on the trip, Danny probably would have had a crush on him. Um, But for Cougar, in order for Cougar to be an instrument that forces Danny to grow, he needed to be a movie star for Cougar. In my mind, anyway. Um, he's not modeled after any one movie star. I want readers, and I tried not to describe him too, too much, because I really want readers to imagine whoever they think he'd be. Um, young adult readers love a little romance. I love a little romance, so I really just want them to bring their own ideas to Guess Price.
0: That makes sense, and so. Yeah. Yeah, that makes perfect sense because that that is why Cougar uh, is so excited about him. Yeah, it's a very Gilderoy Lockhart and Harry Potter type relationship.
1: <laughs> yes,
0: need another uh, famous middle grade slash young adult novel to to sweep uh, the earth. So I have another pop culture reference. <laughs> 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 uh, and then um, oh, another question I had for you uh, is. Uh, how much, um, how, how long did this book take to write? And also how much medical research did you do? Because without spoiling there, that comes in handy. There's a lot of different medical things going on.
1: Definitely. So on my first pass, I didn't fill in. I knew what I wanted to happen and how long I wanted things to take with each character without spoiling it. Um, but I didn't know exactly what it was going to be. I did a little preliminary research on things I thought it was going to be. But we have a, a, a pretty wide network of friends who are in the medical profession. So I ran everything by them. You know, what would a head injury be like? You know, how would it manifest? How long might it take to overcome someone? What would a crushing injury be like? What would a broken bone be like? How could you survive? And when I would go too far, like I would, I would do research and I'd say, oh, I can keep a uh, a gash clean by putting maggots in it because maggots eat you know dying flesh and they were used in World War II um when their injuries um they would say, Okay, hold up, you have gone a little too far. That would take a certain number of days. They would ring me in when I went a little off the rails. Unlike um spiders, snakes, things like that, medical stuff fascinates me. So I did a, just a ton of research on all the medical things and then ultimately ended up running it by people um, to make sure it was right. And the book itself, you know, I had a two book deal with Harper Collins, Inkyard Press, and I sold the speed of following objects based on I think four sentences. And then my pub date was one year later. So I wrote the whole thing first draft, probably in three months, um, edited for another month or two, Gave it to my agent and had it to N- Natasha Wilson, my editor, um, within eight months, probably. So pretty quickly. Yeah. What
0: does a three-month drafting time look like? Are you how, how many hours are you writing a day? And did you have a specific word count you were aiming for? Or how did you judge a successful day?
1: I never look at word count, um, but I get up at 5:30 in the morning, have a quick breakfast, have coffee write for probably four or five hours, take a break in the middle of the day and get exercise because I am a person who needs a ton of exercise and my husband needs exercise and my dog is a slot and that breed needs more exercise than anything I've ever seen in my life. So exercise for a couple hours, come back and spend three to five hours depending editing what I've done. So I never write in the afternoon Rarely, because I just don't feel like I'm, you know, a sharp writer in the afternoon. I'm a morning person. So, you know, maybe I would average 10, 20 pages a day. I don't, you know, I don't, I can't even tell you. Some days would be 20 pages. Some days would be more. Um, I learned from working for Ringling Brothers that you just get it down And so I never worry about like specific words or say I knew I was going to have a broken bone. I didn't need to go into how it was going to, you know, what, like what I was, that looked like, even I just keep moving forward and then go back in the afternoon and fill in. And, you know, sometimes the 10 pages are bad or whatever, and you get rid of them. But usually in the afternoon, I'd find I could work, work through them.
0: Gotcha. So you're you're drafting as fast as you can in the morning. And then mm-hmm. in the afternoon, that's when you're layering in your your research. And you're doing it while it's fresh in your mind. You're not yes. waiting until a month later to go back and yeah. add that stuff.
1: Yeah, I'm doing it. And, and, you know, sometimes you do end up going back and, you know, your biggest fear is always that you're going to get that editorial letter that says, you know, this character doesn't work. And you that character a thread through your whole story. So those are things that, before I would ever give a book to my agent or to Natasha in this case, I follow every thread of the story through character by character, not just timelines, but reactions. Like um, I, I create like an emotional arc for that character, and I pull out every piece where they've leapt forward in any possible way and I put it in a separate document, and I read through it to find out where I've gone wrong, what I missed, did I leap too far forward, did I go too far back. So so I, I, like, that takes me the most time at the end, because I do that for every single character, I do it for every single setting, throughout the whole 400 pages.
0: Are you using Scrivener to do that? Are you using a Word document, just cutting and pasting?
1: Just a Word document. I just cut and paste and pull out every single thing for one character or say like, um, Danny and Cougar's interactions. You know, what, how does he treat her at the beginning? How does that devolve? How does, what does that look like? And I would follow that emotional journey separately. Um, cause I get too confused if I'm trying to follow it with everything else going on and I get, it's like a shiny object. Oh wait, there's Gus. I'm going to go, what does she say to him? How did they look at each other? I need to just follow one thing all the way through. I'm not good at multitasking in that process.
0: So are you a uh, heavy plotter? Or are you a pantser? Where on that spectrum do you fit?
1: I know my beginning and my end. Um, and I don't know my middle at all. Because I feel like if I create a character at the beginning that is three-dimensional enough, they're going to take me along for the ride so I feel like they tell me it sounds so weird I but I feel like when I create a character who really I really know who they are and that they really know who they are and they're fully formed that then I go on the journey with them and I know how Danny's going to feel when Cougar does something or it just I don't know it, it just it kind of just happens And then I look back and I say, oh, this, this is incongruous. I'll take that out. Something else has to happen here. But I kind of just, the middle is just going along on the journey. And I try really, really hard not to think about getting to the end because the end is this one moment. It's kind of like pub day, right? I just had pub day. Woohoo. But if I, if it's all about pub day for me, then the whole last year that I just spent in the process You know, I'm discounting the journey. And so I try and do that with my novels and I try and be on the journey and enjoy that moment where I figure something out or something seems cool or I just wrote a cool line or figure, you know, I just try and enjoy that middle process, even though the middle is the hardest part for me.
0: Yeah, mostly it's enjoyable. Yeah.
1: (laughs) Periodically.
0: There there are days.
1: There are days. I mean, of course.
0: You're pulling your hair out, it's not great. Yeah. You mentioned uh, hearing voices. The nice thing about a a show like this, where it's uh, authors talking to authors for authors and anybody else that wants to listen, uh, is presumably the vast majority of our audience knows exactly what you mean. Whereas I remember, I'm going to out my mom a little bit, but getting back to old Mr. Stephen King, she said, I listened to an interview with your favorite author. He said he hears voices in his head, like maybe Satan's voice. (laughs) I guess in her mind, it's. He's possessed. He's Regan and The Exorcist. Uh, Regan, Regan, Regan. Yes. Uh, and um, uh, then I went back and I listened to the interview she was talking about. Oh, no, I know exactly what he's talking about. There's no demons involved, I think. <laughs> that's that's just what happens when you're working with the story as the characters start to talk to you. And when you're among the members of your tribe, everybody knows what you mean.
1: Exactly. Exactly, it's just the
0: yeah. go, huh, wait a minute.
1: <laughs> yeah, and you ask yourself, like I ask myself all the time, what would Danny do, you know? And just, I start asking myself that question, what would Cougar do, what would Danny do, you know? And you just incorporate it into your story and your life and your plotting and everything, because they tell you. Is there
0: anything that the characters did in this novel that threw off your plans or really surprised you?
1: I think I'm surprised how much empathy I have for Cougar. And I think that surprises me more than anything um, in the whole process. Um, you know, Danny, she was braver in a lot of ways than maybe I originally thought she was going to be. I don't know that I thought I was going to create such a, a, you know, I can't say, I was going to say a bad A blank blank, um, but um, I, I think, think
0: I think that, a esteemed audience can handle that one.
1: Yeah, she became much more powerful than I even imagined that I was gonna create her. But the thing that surprised me most was not only that I had empathy for him, but also that Danny had the capacity for forgiveness, more of a capacity than I think a lot of people might have had for forgiveness. Do
0: you start to plot the sequel in your mind? Or are you done?
1: I am done unless there is a loud call for a sequel. You know, and then it wouldn't be a sequel in any sense of what people might expect. It would be 20 years later. You know, I wouldn't, it would be an adult novel. Um, It would be those readers who loved it. I'd be writing for them for the next phase of their life. And also because that would interest me. Um, what would happen to these characters? What paths did they take in their life? I think that would be interesting to me. And much the same way people write me about when elephants fly and they want to know, did, you know, the main character eventually have to deal with a mental health condition? Or did the elephant calf survive? And Because I leave, you know, I leave things open. And... Um, I wouldn't even write that. I would write something much farther down the line because um, I think that would be more interesting. So, yeah. And plus, you know, when I'm editing Speed of Falling Objects, I'm already, I've written a new manuscript. So then the book comes out and then you go back and you revisit your characters, but I'm immersed in the next story as well. So that makes me less likely to go back because already, I've already leapt forward. Do you work on multiple projects at once? I don't. Um, In the sense that, like, if if I'm editing one, I'm not editing another one, but I do in the sense that as soon as this book went to Natasha, I was already, while I'm waiting for, you know, the editorial letter and for revisions, then I start another one. But I don't have two novels I'm writing at the exact same time. But I never, like, I try not to, like, it, it drives me crazy to wait for edits or um, wait to find out if people are going to love my story. Um, I need to just keep moving forward or else I'll, you know, it'll. It, it's kind of crushing, you know? So you have to write the next story and be immersed so that you don't, you know, care too, too much um, what the reviews are, what's being said. I just have to keep moving forward. Does it work? Um, it, it, it busies my mind to a certain extent. So, yes, I would say that it works 60 <laughs> percent, not 100
0: <100%. laughs> percent. Yeah, but I there's try. no way to completely insulate. Uh, there are authors who admit that, the, that uh, bad reviews and other comments hurt and authors who lie about it. I'm 100 percent convinced this is true.
1: Yeah, it totally hurts. You know, you want everyone to love your story. You want them to understand why you did what you did. You want it to matter to them. All of that, especially when you're writing young adult, I think, you know, or, or when you're writing for kids or when you're writing for young adults. It's like, I don't know. It just really, really matters what they think and how it impacts them to me. Um, but I have to, like, I just have to keep, keep it moving. Otherwise, you know, It would feel like the walls were closing in. Um, So I just write the next book.
0: You mentioned Natasha a couple of times. We're talking about Natasha Wilson, who edited the book and who was uh, profusely thanked in the acknowledgments. So when I see that, I assume that goes beyond just the obligation of thank your editor because you want to sell your next book. It it sounded like you genuinely enjoyed working together. So what was that uh, collaboration like?
1: She's incredibly kind. Um, she is willing to allow you to find your way, but she's also willing to say, this is why I think you should do this. You can do what you want. I'm not going to enforce you, but this is why I think you should be willing to do it. And because she genuinely have final say on everything in the book. Well, yeah, I mean, I could say no, and she would probably let it, let me say no. Um to certain things, but um yeah, and and I wouldn't have chosen to work with her if I didn't trust her instincts. I think she's got great instincts. I think that she's a she's a really talented editor, so um, there's a thing I, with writers where like you fall in love with a sentence or a passage or a chapter, and I I don't. Honestly, I don't. I don't think anything I write is so good or so precious that it can't be made better. And I'm really open to being edited. So when I get an editorial letter, the knee jerk response is always like, holy crap, how am I going to do that? But then I think about it. And with both my books with Natasha, whatever I did that came about because of something she suggested made my story better. And I think because of working for the circus, because I did sport autobiographies where it wasn't my story and where they were heavily edited by the athlete's desire to be perceived in whatever way they wanted to be perceived, I had to let go of myself as the writer in those those experiences. And so with Natasha, Here I am in this situation where I've got this great editor and I really respect her. So it was strangely fun for me. And I'm somebody who loves the editing process. I love, like I I go to see a movie and I am so disappointed if it's a great idea and it's not good because it was edited poorly. And I feel like that with books too. So every time you actually have an editor who really, really cares and is willing to Um, spend the time to make your book better. And if you're pretty simpatico about what you wanted that book to be, if you both agree on what you want it to be, then it's a a great experience and learning process. Um, And you just have to kind of set, if you have a big ego, your ego aside. Um, But yeah, so working with Natasha was awesome.
0: You sound like an editor's uh, dream since you've already uh been had that preciousness removed from you from the years of experience that you had writing um, not on command what's the what's the term I'm looking it for it is
1: though it's like no writer's block i make not to only make every deadline but i'm a couple weeks before a deadline i would never miss a deadline i can't imagine missing a deadline i it just isn't part of so yeah you know for a girl who apologizes for everything because you do <laughs> i will say that i think i'm a really you know good person to work with a good writer to work with with an editor because i'm really open to it that said if if tasha suggested something that i was just i was so so against i i would say something it just wasn't my experience with these two books we didn't ever have a moment where we clashed i think I don't want to spoil one situation for for readers, but between Gus and Danny, the extent of their relationship was the only point that we had different ideas of how far that should go. Mm-hmm. And you having read it, you see which way we went. So I do. Yeah, And that and then, would
0: have been something I would have commented on and I would have spoiled your book.
1: <laughs> yeah. So that was really the only thing where, you know, there was that moment. So, and... We worked through it and I, I think we made the right decision.
0: And, um, So, uh, when you're, when you're deciding what sort of editor that you want to work on or work with, is that your agent stepping in and picking out some editors for you to choose from? How do you get yourself in a position where you're picking the right editor?
1: Well, so you go on submission and you see who wants your book. Um, and then you talk to those editors. I was lucky enough to have a few different editors to speak with. Um, and you see what their vision is for your story and you see how much they want to change it. And if they like the beginning, if they like the ending, um, where they see the characters going, if they think there's a huge plot hole, something that they want to really change. And then you ask what they're writing what their editing style is, you know? Are you a deadline person? Are you super organized? All that kind of stuff. And then you see who you would work best with. And for me, it was, I I really, I had some good options, but Natasha was the right person for when elephants fly specifically and understood what I wanted to do with the speed of falling objects. And thankfully, you know, on four sentences, ended up loving it because it could have gone the other way.
0: Must have been an incredible set of sentences.
1: <laughs> I don't know. I wasn't sure what I was going to do. So it was a seat of my pants moment.
0: So for a nice teaching moment for other uh, uh, soon to be authors listening, um, what uh, specific things do you, did you ask the editors that you were interviewing for the position? How did you determine who was going to be the best?
1: Well, it really was just asking them what they thought of the story. And where you know if they had anything that they really felt strongly that they wanted to change, Um, it wasn't with the speed of falling objects. It was with when elephants fly because I had a two-book offer from a few different publishing houses, and so it was really just where do you want the story to go? Why do you think you're the right editor to do this? And then it was discussions with my agent because um, Stephanie Kip Roston at Levine Greenberg Roston is my agent and. When I chose her and she chose me, it was because we both wanted the same thing for my career. And we have a similar vision. So um, after talking to editors, and she would talk to those editors as well, then Steph and I talked together and made the right choice for where we wanted to go. It's a team thing. Gosh, it's like writing is such a team sport. You know, it's like your agent and you need to be on a team and your editor and... Everybody who works in marketing and PR and it amazes me sometimes when a book comes out because there's so many hands in it, so many people helping um, and everybody needs to work really well together to be a success. So it's, I'm just like the one first part, you know, and then it gets moved on into all these other worlds.
0: So how, um, well, what have you found to be... Uh, aside from being on this podcast, obviously. What have you found to be the most effective forms of marketing? And how are you getting the most bang for your time and money?
1: I am not the greatest person to talk to about marketing. I don't understand it. It's like this whole black sorcery world that, like, you know, there are witches and warlocks. And I don't know who decides what and how things happen. <laughs> and, um, I really just, I just write for the most part. You know, I'm on Instagram. I'm a little bit on Twitter, but not much. Twitter scares me. Um, I'm afraid of always making a misstep on Twitter. Um, Instagram's really nice. The Bookstagram is lovely. So I post a a bit on Instagram and develop friendships on Instagram and um, take other people's suggestions and support other authors. Um, I don't really do very much publicity and marketing. That's why I wanted to be traditionally published I don't really want to do that stuff I want um a publishing house to do it because I don't know how to do it um so you know I do a few Facebook ads now and then I don't know if they do anything um I I did a BookBub ad I see that I've had 5,000 clicks but I don't know what that means like I don't know what that you know how that translates so I really mostly leave that to the publishing house
0: we should mention that uh, you were referred to me through our previous guest and one of my favorite publicists in the world, Megan Baby. Yes. Have you yes. been working with Megan for long?
1: Just on this book and she's wonderful and she, you know, finds opportunities like this for me to to chat and um, I just do what she tells me. And <laughs> You know, and that that's really, you can't be good at everything and so I think If you want to write and you're not good at publicity or marketing, then you work with publicists, right? And you work with the marketing team and you let them figure out how to move your book in that space.
0: Makes sense. So... That's uh, something I always try to emphasize when I'm uh, doing workshops for uh, up-and-coming writers. Uh, For example, if I'm talking to somebody that's firmly committed to independently publishing, and they say, I've got a great idea for how I'm going to design my cover, my first question is, has anyone else ever paid you money to design a cover before? If not, don't be your first patron.
1: Let's get somebody that knows what they're doing. Yes. Yes. That is exactly true. And so that's what I try and do with all the publicity and marketing. Let people who are really good at it do it for me.
0: Makes sense. I could go on talking with you all night. I know we've already blown past the time I, I told you we'd call it, and I'm uh, concerned as we get later in the evening because I spent about six hours running around a beehive that had pumpkins in it. They called it a pumpkin oh, patch, yeah. but there were so many bees, and that's my biggest fear. Uh, it's not spiders, not snakes. It's bees.
1: Bees, okay. Um,
0: why I wrote a book about giant robot bees, and I've right. written things about bees forever. Actually, I was uh, telling one of the uh, teachers today, while we were out and about on this field trip, I was a chaperone parent for my son. Uh, well, it was a great time, but uh, I'm also a little bit worn out, which is why I know that we need to wrap this up before I become completely incoherent. Uh, but um, I was telling them about the time I got uh, hypnosis because uh, I discovered it was, a, it was something I could get on my, um, on my insurance plan at the time. Like really, you guys will cover sessions of that. And I was writing a different book about alien abduction, and I didn't have any alien abduction experiences. But I thought, oh well, I could at least undergo hypnosis, and I'll have that part right for my story. And so I went and I sat and I said, please make me not afraid of bees. And after about three different sessions, still nothing. So I sat today. Uh, they, they insisted on reading us a, a story in this tent where there were three trash cans on either side of the tent. Oh my and gosh. And there were bees crawling on the, the kids' faces. There were bees crawling and the woman reading That's the
1: horrible. story. I was like, That's horrible. Why is
0: no one pointed up to this pumpkin patch to move story time away from the trash can.
1: Wow. Yeah, that would, that would drive me crazy too. I mean, bees go in with everything else, I'm afraid of insect wise.
0: That is my greatest fear. Like if you have, if I had the choice between facing swimming with a couple of great white sharks or dealing with like three bees in a room, I'm going sharks.
1: Wow. Okay. Bees are that. Yep. Top of your list. Top
0: of my list. So now <laughs> I've just given all of my enemies my my great secret. If you're looking to get at me, give me <laughs> a, a spider. A could me that bird. big. <laughs> Well, that's what i hate about them it's not it's not wasp it's specific to bees because wasp i've been stung by before i know how to handle them they're big enough that you can spot them. It's those tiny little bees that get in close and then they just disappear yes. and something's going to hurt me and i'm never going to see it coming because it's too close
1: yes they go down your shirt oh my lord yeah.
0: <laughs> it's just horrifying or up the pant leg yes <laughs> Um, but I wanted to ask you, well, you know what? I mentioned, I mentioned alien abduction, so I better for sure ask you, uh, Nancy Richardson Fisher, have you ever seen a flying saucer, and do you believe in them?
1: I haven't, but I believe. And my whole life, ever since seeing Cocoon and the um, Close Encounters of the Third Kind, I wish with all my might that they are real and that they will take me and my husband, because I don't want to go without him, but I, I would... Jump on! As long as I'm not going to be a medical experiment, I do. I, I. This world is too, too small to be it. There has to be more out there. There are galaxies and galaxies and galaxies. So I'm a firm believer.
0: Well, it seems like we're quietly getting disclosure at this point. I uh, just they, without getting political, the government has been in such disarray every year. There's a major story that gets buried under all the other news. Right. Like, for example, two years back, the government admitted that it has flying saucer technology, like, straight up <laughs> to what the New York like Times. Terrible.
1: I know. No, I – there's so much we don't know. I wish we knew. We don't. Maybe at some point we will. I hope in my lifetime that something happens like that.
0: I'm, uh, all my fingers are crossed. Uh, and I, I always say when we talk about this is that if you could prove to me that it wasn't true, I wouldn't want you to because I like living with that hope that uh, we're not the top of the food chain. That There is something else that could come along and hopefully it's 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 kind and, and helping and wants to, you know, bring us into that Star Trek utopian universe.
1: Yes. Yes, I hope so. I'm a huge Trekkie. So. I, I, if you play the music from the original Star Trek, any episode, I can tell you which one it is. Right from the beginning music. That's how much I love it.
0: So what are you going to write another science fiction book or a horror story? Do you have all this love in you for the genre? I
1: don't know. I think horror would be the next one. So I'd like to, I'd like to try, give it, give it a little try. So that
0: Still would be young my... young
1: adult, you think? Mm, maybe not I like to swear when I'm writing so I think uh, maybe adult
0: and I'm about to ask you a final question unless there's anything else you want to make sure we talk about
1: this was fantastic I just so appreciate getting to chat and, and talk with you about writing and talk to another writer it's you know writing's a solitary endeavor so this is a treat and I really appreciate your having me it's
0: been an absolute pleasure on this end as well lots of fun um so let me uh, quickly reintroduce this hi there esteemed audience uh we're back i just got some top secret unbelievable information that i wish i could share with you but i've sworn to secrecy i could never tell you (laughs) uh and nancy thanks uh, again so much for making the time to do this i have absolutely enjoyed our time tonight and hearing your stories
1: Thank you so much. I've really, really enjoyed chatting with you. And I actually already downloaded your zombie story onto my Kindle because I need to check it out. Oh, well, I hope
0: you, you have a good time uh, and that it uh, thrills you as much as, um, as you've thrilled me.
1: <laughs> Thank you.
0: Well, here's my uh, usual last question, because this uh, covers anything that I just didn't think to ask you throughout the course of our conversation. And that is if there's anything that you could go back and tell a younger version of yourself uh, that would have made a tremendous difference in your writing and made easier the path for you, what would that thing that you go back and, or, or two, a couple of things that you go back and tell you, can you?
1: Let's see, what would I go back and tell myself? To embrace your quirks, to not always try and fit in, And to just embrace the things that make you different, because those are the things that are going to serve you best as you go through your life. You know, trying to be like everybody else is kind of boring. So embrace your differences, embrace your quirks, embrace your unique strengths. Um, Be okay with the things you're not great at. And yeah, I think that's what I tell myself.
0: Now if I can just figure out how to be okay with the things I'm not great at. Because it's no small number of things. It's a very long list. I'm just not okay with it.
1: Me too. I feel the exact same way. But, you know, just be different. Kids always want to be the same as everybody else. The things that make you different are the things that make you exciting and interesting and serve you through your whole life.
0: It's perfect advice. Embrace your uh, difference and you'll be on the right path to being the most you you can be.
1: (laughs) Exactly.
0: Nancy, where uh, can esteemed audience find you online? Where can they buy all your books and stalk you?
1: Well, my website is nancyrichardsonfisher.com and Fisher's F-I-S-C-H-E-R. They can find me on Instagram at nanfisherauthor or Twitter at nanfisherauthor. And um, my email, author email, nancyrichardsonfisherauthor at gmail.com.
0: And can they find you on Twitter?
1: Yes. And kind of, sort of.
0: Instagram, yeah. you mentioned. Where can they find um, you on both those spots?
1: Nan Fisher author on both Twitter and Instagram.
0: Perfect. And uh, as you know, as teamed audience, you can find me at middlegradeninja.com. Follow me on Twitter at MGNinja. Look forward to my one to two tweets a week. Very exciting. <laughs> That's I'm with you. I, I'm uh, wary of Twitter. That's, uh, too much yeah. of a time waster.
1: Yes, me too.
0: Uh, and... Uh, I've been asking all of our guests to sign us off with the very ninja like sign off phrase totally uh, explains the name of the show Uh, that sign off phrase is hiya and what have you will you sign us off.
1: Sure hiya and what have you.